CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This afternoon, the World Health Organization Director General warned that the time to act against the coronavirus, coronavirus was actually one month ago, but that this is a second opportunity, an opportunity, quote, which we should not squander and do everything to suppress and control this virus, unquote. This hour, the number of deaths in the U.S. is now more than 800. To give you some perspective on how fast the death toll is accelerating, yesterday at this time, there had been 646 deaths. The cases, of course, confirmed cases also continuing to spike, growing about 11,000 just in the last 24 hours. Now we have close to 62,000 people infected in the U.S., confirmed infected. Its real number is assuredly more than that. One hospital system in New York has seen a tenfold increase in coronavirus patients in the past week. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo says the hospitalizations across the state are surpassing predicted numbers so far and that the peak of this crisis there could still be three weeks away. The calls for ventilators and protective equipment across the country still dire. As we learned, 33 doctors have now died from the coronavirus in Italy. The Italian Federation of Doctors saying a lack of protective equipment is to blame and the World Health Organization says the entire world, in fact, is facing a significant shortage. And as CNN's Nick Watt reports for us now, now states across the country are bracing for what's next. There are field hospitals in Manhattan, college dorms being converted, existing hospitals up in capacity, a Navy hospital ship coming soon. But New York is still 20,000 beds shy of what they say they'll need. Then we're looking at hotels, we're looking at uh, former nursing homes. They had 4,000 ventilators. They bought 7,000 more. FEMA delivered 4,000. But New York is still 15,000 short. We're exploring splitting where one ventilator could do two patients. They're now opening some streets to pedestrians to reduce density in city parks and no more group sports like basketball. But there is hope. The rate of hospitalizations in New York is now slowing. The evidence suggests that the density control measures may be working. Confirmed cases now spiking elsewhere, more than doubling in Louisiana since early Monday. At least 18 more deaths reported today in New Jersey. The WHO now says the U.S. doesn't have to be the next global epicenter. You've still got the means of turning it around. She says by testing, tracing contacts, isolating and many of us continuing to quarantine as around half of all Americans are now under orders to do. We're seeing a doubling once a day in deaths from coronavirus. The doubling time is only one day and that is the worst in the world right now. Waffle House, which prides itself on staying open even during hurricanes, has now closed nearly one in five of its diners. Amazon, a crutch for so many staying home, is now dealing with coronavirus cases among workers in at least nine facilities nationwide. Walmart, Kroger and others now adding sneeze guards to checkout lanes. Now, Governor Cuomo came up with a plan this morning. He said, why don't we get as many ventilators, as many supplies to New York right now while they're experiencing the spike? Then, when the virus spikes elsewhere in the country, we move that equipment with it. The problem is, what if a number of places get slammed at the same time? You know, today we have had 11 states in different parts of the country all reporting 100 or more new confirmed cases. Jake. Yeah, it's hard to imagine any governor is turning over their equipment to a different state when they know that the worst is coming. 
Uh, Nick Watt, thank you so much. CNN's Dr. Sanjay Gupta uh, joins us now. And Sanjay, uh, there's so little guidance. Obviously, we know if somebody is having trouble breathing, he or she should call the ER and go to the ER as soon as possible. But let me ask you about a hypothetical. What if somebody is in one of the vulnerable groups, over 60, with pre-existing conditions, and that person uh, has coronavirus or, or strongly thinks so, maybe even has tested positive. Now, the person is not having trouble breathing, but has a fever, yeah. is weak, is having trouble eating and drinking, uh, maybe because of the loss of a sense of taste, the loss of appetite. Should that person go get checked out at an ER to get assessed, maybe even to get hydrated with an IV? Yeah, uh, Jake, I, th- I think without question, you know, you have somebody who is uh, elderly, who, who may not have the classic symptoms of coronavirus, but a lot of patients don't have the classic symptoms of coronavirus. But the idea now that they're not keeping fluids down, food down, that's a concern. And, and the problem is you can get behind pretty quickly in a situation, especially, again, if someone is elderly. A couple things. Uh, they should call ahead. Uh, let them know that they're coming, especially if they've tested positive, because that way they can be put in a room that's uh, going to be isolated. You don't want to get other people sick, obviously. And, um, you know, a- after that, it's just a question of, of getting that hydration and hopefully being able to go home. But there are going to be scenarios like this. Jake, one thing I want to point out, because I think sometimes this is lost on people, is that, you know, we talk about the vulnerable population, the elderly, 70s and 80s, but th- you're still far more likely, even at that age, to not need to go to the hospital to not get very sick from this. While you're more likely than younger people, you know, the hospitalization rate for people in their 70s and 80s is closer to 20, 25%, which means 75 to 80% of people don't need the hospital. Sometimes I think people perceive this story as being, uh, you know, just an automatic sentence for people who are elderly. It's not. Most of the time it's not. But if you do, if you're having those symptoms that I described, you should go to the hospital. Let me ask you, President Trump is hoping to you lift. You should. Yeah. President Trump is hoping to lift the restrictions on on movement and social gatherings by Easter. That's just 18 days from now. Uh, It was hedged a little bit yesterday during the briefing. Uh, Dr. Fauci said that the date needs to be flexible. Uh, What do you think is the impact uh, if the president says, "Okay, everyone, uh, crowd the pews on Easter, even if um, Fauci is saying, you know, that's not my advice? Yeah, and Fauci's being very clear on this. Let's follow the data is, is what he keeps saying. Sort of, it sounds like he's being flexible there. But, you know, the, the, the reality is, Jake, we know what the data is going to show. Right now, the picture that we're getting from the data is reflective of 10 to 14 days ago. Uh, we know that during this time, the virus has clearly been spreading. You've heard that some, in some places, the doubling rate is every two days, uh, so, sometimes even faster than that in some of these places. So, you know, the, the data is going to look worse at the time that they're starting to think about pulling back. That's going to be clear, I think. So, uh, that, in fact, some, some have estimated that we may start to be getting to the peak in terms of patients needing to, to be in the hospital. So I, I think it's very hard to imagine that in, in April, you know, around Easter, that could possibly look like a scenario where it's time to start relaxing things. And we've seen some places, some countries, think that they were out of the woods, relax restrictions, yeah. and then they get another spike and the disease comes back with a vengeance. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, Hong Kong has been the example. Hong Kong was the place that you and I were talking about as, sh- as showing a, a good example of how things can, can go and, and cases can remain low. Um, they relaxed the restrictions and they doubled their cases within a few days. So it, if you're going to do this, it has to be done early. It has to be done consistently. It has to be done diligently. It has to be done honestly. All those things we talk about, if you take your foot off the gas at some point, you, kind of, you, you, you run the risk of erasing a lot of the gains you may have made. A leading epidemiologist, one who advises the CDC, has estimated that the peak of deaths in this country will be 
uh, three weeks from now. So we need to keep doing the social distancing, right? Yeah, look, I mean, and the three weeks from now, I mean, people hear that and they think, well, that's not that far away. I think one of the points of that study is that it's too soon in a way, because that's not a flat curve like we want, right? You want this to sort of be a flatter curve that, that, uh, where you see the people actually peaking later on. So you, you don't, you know, not all these people are rushing the hospitals at the same time. So he's sort of making those projections on the existing sort of social distancing. If we don't keep doing that, I mean, the situation could be even worse. Right now, we're probably somewhere in between the, the red and the blue line. Uh, we want, obviously want to be in the blue space, Jake. A little fact check now. Today, President Trump tweeted, quote, just reported that the United States has done far more testing than any other nation by far. In fact, over an eight-day span, the United States now does more testing than what South Korea, which has been a very successful tester, does over an eight-week span. Great job. Now, to break down these numbers, we can't find any evidence this is even remotely true. Uh, South Korea has run more than 350,000 tests. And while there's no official count of tests done in the U.S. on Sunday, Vice President Pence said it was about 250,000. Uh, that doesn't include private labs and hospitals. Other rough numbers we've seen suggest that South Korea is slightly above the U.S. Um, they're, they're roughly comparable, yeah. but South Korea has done a little bit more. But, but here's the important point, right? The U.S. population is six times that of South Korea. So a far more meaningful metric would be that South Korea tested one in 170 okay. people and the U.S. tested one in 1,090 Look, I mean, no, no question. And we have been doing uh, an inadequate job when it comes to testing. You're right. It's kind of striking to us as journalists that we don't even know really how many tests have been performed because there's public labs and there's commercial labs and there's hospitals. But we were told, Jake, because we've been following this so closely, that all of that would report into the CDC. We would have a really good way of, of sort of accessing that information that still hasn't been made available. But despite that, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, we're still uh, behind other countries on testing, and we're still inadequate by just about any metric. Now, when you hear that some places are just assuming, some ERs are just assuming everyone who comes in with those symptoms has coronavirus, and some of them are, are just not even testing people, that doesn't mean, right, that we should stop testing. We still really need to get a very aggressive national testing campaign so that we can isolate the virus, yeah, I mean, Jake, I think some of these recommendations came about as a result of the fact that we didn't have enough tests, right. right? We would like to be doing a lot more testing. We'd like to get good surveillance. And now people are being told, uh, you know, don't bother getting a test if you're not showing any kind of symptoms. Um, you know, that, that makes sense for the patient because there's no, you know, antiviral the patient's going to get specifically. But from a public health standpoint, it still doesn't give us really good vision on what's happening here. And that's because of the inadequacy of the tests. And why is the U.S. still so behind in testing for this? Well, you know, we've looked into this. And part of it is that we got a late start because they sent out a flawed test initially that did not work in these, all these various uh, public health labs around the country. The, the other part of it, Jake, is, you know, this, this really uh, shows how interdependent all these things are. So, for example, in order to do a test, a, a healthcare provider is going to put on the personal protective equipment, the mask, the goggles, you know, the, the gloves, the gown, all that sort of stuff. Well, Jake, that, that has also been limited. So all of a sudden you now have this issue with lack of personal protective stuff being available, impacting testing as well. There's all these points that for that to have worked properly, and that's another example of where it sort of fell apart. So, you know, they got to fix each problem to make it work. 
Dr. Sanjay Gupta, we always appreciate your time. Thanks so much for answering our questions uh, and to hear more answers from the doctor. Sanjay Gupta, be sure to tune in to CNN for another global coronavirus town hall that's at 8 p.m. Eastern tomorrow night. Coming up next, we're going to speak to a congressman from hard hit New York about the situation in his state and the historic stimulus that might now be in jeopardy and also ahead. He's next in line to the throne and has recently visited the queen And now we learn that Prince Charles has coronavirus. We're going to go live outside Windsor Castle. Stay with us. Welcome back. Today, three Senate Republicans are threatening to hold up the largest economic stimulus package in American history. They say it cannot go forward with what they see as incentives for businesses to lay off workers. What's public about the deal shows unprecedented unemployment benefits, possibly $600 a week for jobless Americans, on top of what states may already offer. In addition to that, there are direct payments to Americans looking to pay bills during this coronavirus crisis. CNN's Manu Raju is on Capitol Hill. And Manu, so Senator Bernie Sanders says that if these Republicans get the generous unemployment benefits, generous, you know, relatively, unemployment benefits taken away, he's going to put on hold, uh, the, the bill on hold because of all the bailouts to corporations. Yeah, and this is uh, exactly the problems in trying to push through such a massive proposal in so little time because in the United States Senate, the majority leader, Mitch McConnell, will need support from all 100 members to move quickly to a final vote. And if he does not get that consent from all 100 members, it could only delay the proceedings and he'll have to essentially listen to some of those demands and try to cut a deal in order to move to a final vote, which is why it's uncertain exactly the timing of this final vote, despite this deal that was cut, cut a historic deal at 1 a.m. this morning. We still have not seen that final version of this bill because they're trying to sort out some of these last issues that are coming up. And you mentioned it, this about unemployment benefits. The Republican senators are arguing they're too generous and that it would incentivize people to stay out of the workforce because of these unemployment benefits. The proponents say that this is simply a temporary measure. uh, And that deal, the jobless benefit deal, was cut between the administration, Republican senators and Democratic senators. They are unlikely to succeed in stripping it out, but they could succeed in delaying final action here on the vote, Jake. Even let's let's put aside the the delay that's going on right now um, by these three uh, Republican senators. Um, If you take away the delay, the Senate still needs to vote. The House of Representatives still needs to vote. The president still needs to sign it. Even without the delay, how quickly can this aid get to those who are desperate for it? It's going to take some time because after all those steps happen, they still actually have to implement this. And the implementation will take some time, particularly spending the enormous amount of money we are talking about here in this proposal. And when we're talking about a final vote in the House, even there's a question about that. The House is not going to vote today. It's uncertain whether the House will vote tomorrow. And the members are out of town. The question is, can they simply do it by a voice vote? One Democratic Congresswoman, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, told me earlier today that she is considering and she might object to any effort to vote on this by voice and essentially force the members to come back and vote in person. Now, she's not ruling it out. She's she's keeping open that option because she wants to see the final bill text. But she's concerned, in her view, this bill is too tilted towards corporations. So we'll see if that gets sorted out. But among the issues here as they try to pass this historic measure, but are finding resistance on both sides of the aisle. Jake. All right, Manu Raju, thanks so much. Let's bring in Democratic Congressman Max Rose of New York. His district spans Staten Island and parts of Brooklyn in New York, which is obviously uh, the epicenter in the United States of this pandemic. Um, uh, Congressman Rose, uh, what's your 
view of this massive stimulus package, uh, is the aid enough for the people in your district who are hurting? Sure. So thank you so much for for having me. And I hope you and all your uh, viewers are staying strong during this incredibly difficult time. Uh, Is this bill perfect? Absolutely not. But what we have to understand right now is there is a fierce sense of urgency, a fierce sense of urgency for all those people I see in my district, all those nurses and doctors having to go and serve every day without PPE or at least not enough PPE. They're the soldiers in this frontline war, and we have to get them these resources. There's a fierce sense of urgency for all those people who are now unemployed, been laid off. To these senators who are saying that unemployment benefits don't matter or that people want to be laid off, maybe we should lay them off from the Senate because this is utterly insensitive. It is ridiculous. Let's stop with the filibustering and let's get something done because after this is done, we're going to have to think about what else needs to be done because this crisis is here to stay. Your fellow uh, New York Democrat, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, says that she might, might force all members to vote in person uh, on the record at the House of Representatives. As you know, uh, members of Congress are back in their home districts right now. Um, do you think uh, that it's a I mean, what do you what do you make of that? I mean, she, her view is that people need to really take a look at this bill, that there are too many giveaways to corporations. It's not enough. It's not tilted enough yeah. towards the worker. And it should not just be done through uh, unanimous consent with only one or two members of Congress there. What do you think? Well, look, first of all, what I think that when we're considering large corporations, medium-sized corporations, small businesses, when it comes to the hardworking Americans who are employed by them, they don't really care how big the business is that employs them. They just want to stay on the books. So we have to be concerned about not making the same mistakes we made in 08, not allowing for these bailouts to lead to shareholder uh, buybacks and to extensive, exorbitant CEO compensation and all different ways in which executives have padded their own pockets on the backs of workers. But again, I go back to the fierce sense of urgency that we have to have right now. Every day that we let this go by, it will be harder to recover. This is not just a status quo that lives on from day to day to day. You know from your reporting of previous financial and economic crises, the longer it goes on, the harder it is to get out of it. So you don't support Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez theoretically forcing all the members of the House of Representatives to come back to to look at the bill and then vote vote on it in person? Right now, considering the fact that we have members of Congress quarantined, considering the fact that it could take days, if not weeks, to get people back, I, I, am, I can't come out here and support what she is doing. I think that that would be irresponsible. But with that being said, going forward, Congress has to adopt some way for remote voting and a remote participation in this effort. Because otherwise, we, will, we may not be able to act as a relevant legislative body. And that is also unconscionable. Uh, your office notes that Staten Island, which you represent in Congress, has the highest rate of coronavirus cases in New York City, which is already hard hit on its own. Uh, Northwell Health, which runs hospitals in your district today, said it had to set up one triage in a hospital lobby. Its cases have gone up tenfold in the last week to more than a thousand. Uh, is there help on the way for the facilities in your district and, and other ones in New York? 
Yeah, so let, let, let's talk about what uh, I think needs to happen because this, this is not a state issue. This is not a city issue. This requires the actions of the federal government and a wartime footing. Uh, eight days ago or so, I called on the uh, president to work with the governor to bring a, a naval ship to New York Harbor. That is on its way with a thousand beds for non-COVID patients so we can relieve the stress on the existing hospitals. Our VA system needs to be opened up to non-veterans and they need to start building out into wings that they were not formally using. The, the army, the military should deploy at least a medical battalion if not a medical brigade, to Fort Hamilton base in my district, the only active duty base in New York City, so they can build a field hospital. You know, when my vehicle hit an IED in Afghanistan seven years ago or so, and I was medevaced to Kandahar Air Force Base to a state-of-the-art field hospital, that thing wasn't there in the 90s. We built it. We know how to do this. It comes with strategy, solidarity, and resources, and we have got to dedicate that to our current effort to say nothing of FEMA pushing millions of PPE items, thousands of ventilators to our hospitals because we need them. And then when we're done with these ventilators, when this crisis subsides and it moves on to somewhere else, we, as the governor mentioned today, will happily allocate those resources to the states and cities that need them most. Mm -hmm. Democratic Congressman Max Rose of New York, stay in touch. Let us know what you need. Send our love to your brothers and sisters in Staten Island. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It's not just you feeling a little isolated at home. Aid say President Trump is going through the same. What might that mean for the United States? That's next. Senator Mitt Romney, Republican of Utah, was told by a doctor to self-quarantine after Romney was exposed to the coronavirus through Senator Rand Paul, who tested positive. Thankfully, Senator Romney's test has come back and it is negative. Romney is 73 and was particularly concerned since his wife, Anne, who is 70, has multiple sclerosis, which makes Anne particularly vulnerable to the coronavirus. In response to the news that Romney was okay, the president tweeted, seemingly sarcastically, this is really great news. I am so happy I can barely speak. He may have been a terrible presidential candidate and an even worse U.S. senator, but he is a rhino, Republican in name only, and I like him a lot, unquote. For those who are suffering from coronavirus or whose loved ones are suffering from coronavirus and who find nothing funny about any of it, the president, barely speaking, might seem like a really good idea. The tweet comes as President Trump has been musing to AIDS when life will get back to normal, as CNN's Caitlin Collins reports now from the White House. The president isn't backing off his prediction that the country could reopen by Easter, though public health experts and economists are warning it's unlikely and inadvisable. Who suggested they would do that? Who suggested I just that thought it was a beautiful time. The country still doesn't have widespread testing for the coronavirus, and confirmed cases are increasing by the hour. It's also not clear that Trump informed his task force beforehand about the date he had picked. I don't know how, how well informed they were. Deciding when people go back to work may not be up to the president. New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy says he hopes that Trump is right, but his state will stay the course until he decides it's ready. My fear, based on the meetings we're having constantly, would suggest that we're not going to be out of the woods by then. I hope I'm wrong. I hope they're wrong. My fear is they're not. For now, the president is telling Americans to continue social distancing. Keep following our guidelines on social distancing. But sources tell CNN he's growing antsy at being sealed off from the outside world. 
Without lunches with foreign leaders or arenas filled with supporters, Trump has wondered aloud when life will return to normal for the nation and for himself. Outside of necessary governing, day-to-day operations at the White House have also been scaled back. Public tours have been canceled, the yearly Easter egg roll was called off, and the state dinner with the king and queen of Spain has been postponed. The slowdown in the president's own life has led in part to his desire to lift guidelines that are keeping many at home. The president has been working the phones, speaking with New York Governor Andrew Cuomo several times a day. Yesterday, the White House advised that anyone who left New York City in recent days should self-quarantine for two weeks. You may have been exposed before you left New York. But New York State is shrugging off that suggestion. I don't know uh, medicine. I would turn to the doctor. After Trump didn't say whether he gave Cuomo a heads up, the New York State Health Commissioner pushed back on the White House's advice. I would would not uh, follow that. I I believe that uh, you should follow the guidelines in general, that you should social distance. Now, Jake, the president's top economic advisor, Larry Kudlow, was just on television, and he's predicting a large increase in those unemployment numbers that we're going to see come out tomorrow morning. And that comes as the president himself is tweeting, saying that the media wants him to keep the country closed because they want it to be detrimental to his success in the November election. That, of course, is nonsense. The media is listening to health officials who say if the country opens up before it's ready, it will cost hundreds, thousands, maybe even more lives. Caitlin Collins, thank you so much. A sad note, we just found out there have been 185 deaths due to coronavirus reported today, just today in the United States. That makes today the deadliest day so far in the U.S. due to the coronavirus. The pandemic has crippled Asia, Europe, and the United States. So why are three Latin American leaders downplaying the warning signs? And could that spell disaster? Stay with us. Today we learned Prince Charles has tested positive for COVID-19 and is currently self-isolating with his wife Camilla, the Duchess of Cornwall, at their Scotland estate. In Spain, deaths climbed by more than 700 over just the past 24 hours, making it the country with the second highest death toll behind Italy and ahead of China. Four more doctors in Italy died since yesterday due to a lack of protective medical equipment. But the overall death rate in that country is declining. And in India, 1.3 billion residents are currently under a mandatory 21 lockdown period to prevent the further spread of the virus. There are now more than 600 confirmed cases in India. We have a team of correspondents covering the global pandemic. We're going to start with CNN's Max Foster, who's tracking the latest on Prince Charles' condition from Windsor, England. The 71-year-old next in line to the throne started displaying mild symptoms at the weekend and was tested on Monday and received his positive result on Tuesday, according to a royal source. He's in good health, the source told CNN, and self-isolating on the family estate in Scotland, as is his wife Camilla, separately from Charles, though her test came back negative. According to a royal source, Charles has been advised by medics that he became contagious on March the 13th at the earliest. The day before, he was at Buckingham Palace with the Queen. She remained in good health, according to her office, though they wouldn't confirm if she'd been tested too. The Queen's cancelled all her public engagements and withdrew to Windsor Castle outside London with husband Prince Philip last week. It's not clear where the Prince of Wales caught the virus due to the high number of public engagements he attended in recent weeks, his office said. He didn't stop working in accordance with government advice at the time. 
The royal source says the prince has been advised his case is unlikely to escalate into anything more serious. And efforts are underway to track down anyone he's been in contact with over the last two weeks and possibly exposed to the virus. I've been told that before this was announced, Prince Charles rang both Prince Harry and Prince William to inform them of his diagnosis. Prince Harry at a safe distance, of course, with his family in Canada. We're waiting on an update, though, on the Cambridges. Were they in touch with Prince Charles in this critical period? Have they been tested? We'll bring you that as soon as we have it, Jake. All right, Max, stay safe. Spanish officials are warning that the worst may be yet to come as that country's healthcare system is being completely overwhelmed. Scott McLean joins me from the capital of Spain, Madrid. And Scott, a, a grim milestone as the death toll in Spain is now surpassing the death toll in China. You spoke today with Spain's foreign minister about the shortage they're having of medical supplies. Yeah, that's right, Jake. The shortage is so severe here that the Spanish military has actually asked NATO for help. Spain has also made a deal with China to secure about half a billion dollars worth of supplies. But the full order won't actually come through until June. The reality in the hospitals is that there are not enough ventilators for patients and not enough protective equipment for uh, healthcare workers. And they're getting ill as a result. More than 5,400 across the country at last count have been infected already. In fact, Three unions representing healthcare workers have gone to the courts to demand that the government provide them with enough protective equipment. The government says it's trying to secure this, uh, these materials as quickly as they can. But like in the United States with the Defense Production Act, Spain also has the power to compel companies to force them to produce these things. But they haven't used that power yet. I asked the foreign minister why. Listen. In a way, it's a market that is organizing itself. We've got Inditex, uh, the uh, mother company of Zara, that has decided to start producing gowns and masks. We didn't have to mandate them because they realized that they had now, they had to play their part in helping the country and the government uh, respond to the virus. So if that answer sounds familiar, it's because that's essentially what President Trump is saying as well, that he hasn't had to use his powers under the Defense Production Act because so far companies haven't said no. In other words, they're doing it already. Scott, when do health officials there in Spain expect to hit the peak of the virus? They hope soon. A couple of days ago, a regional health official had predicted that the peak would actually come today because today marks two weeks since schools closed across Spain. And obviously, 14 days is the maximum incubation period. But today, one of the top health officials in Spain predicted that the death toll would continue to climb and the number of deaths would continue to increase over the coming days, though. But in terms of the number of cases, he said, look, if we haven't reached the peak already, we are getting pretty close. All right, Scott, stay safe. Leaders in Mexico, Brazil and Nicaragua are downplaying the significance and severity of the coronavirus outbreak, sparking fears of the consequences of them not taking this seriously and how it could be disastrous. CNN's Matt Rivers joins me now from Mexico City. Matt, Mexico's President Lopez Obrador recently said that families should continue their lives as normal. Uh, is he still saying that? Well, he's changed his tone slightly, Jake, but I fear that the damage you know, has already been done. Take a look at this video. This is just from five days ago when everybody knew how bad this outbreak could be. And yet there is Mexico's president standing in the middle of a group of children playing instruments. And just a few days earlier, he was at a press conference. He was asked about the virus and he held up two ambulances and he said those, along with his ability to be honest and his inability to become corrupt, 
would help protect him from the virus. Now, over the last few days, Mexico has seen its number of positive cases nearly double. The federal government has taken some action, closing schools, telling people to stay at home. Uh, but the fact is, there's a lot of people out on the streets. And Jake, with one of the worst country outbreaks just across Mexico's border in the United States, there's a lot of people here in Mexico who are saying that the actions of Mexico's president over the last few days, last few weeks, has been nothing short of irresponsible. Well, exactly. I mean, just look at the United States. Uh, president Trump was downplaying this a, a month ago, and now look at how it's exploded. Um, Matt, the, the press secretary uh, for the Brazilian president, Bolsonaro, he tested positive for the virus, but even after that, uh, Bolsonaro has reiterated his skepticism, calling the virus a, quote, little flu this week. Yeah, he's doubled down on it. He gave an address to the nation last night, a four and a half minute speech in which he blamed the media for the crisis, saying it was the media creating fear uh, and hysteria. And he also blamed regional governors down there for actually taking preventative measures like enforcing stay at home uh, protocols, like closing down schools. The Brazilian president actually said in his words that because the threat of this virus was greatest to those over 60, schools should stay open. I think Nearly all, if not every single epidemiologist around the world would tell you that is a terrible idea. And Jake, this all comes as Brazil leads Latin America in the number of cases, some 2,500 confirmed so far. And yet Brazil's president wants you to believe that this is the media's fault. Yeah. Blaming the media and attacking governors sounds familiar. Uh, thanks so much. Appreciate it, Matt. If you're looking for ways to help those in need due to the coronavirus pandemic, visit CNN's Impact Your World page. It's at CNN.com slash impact. Working from home with kids, parents trying to adjust to the new normal while filling in as teachers for their children. Some tips on how to cope and how to help your children cope. That's next. Stay with us. For many of us, working from home means taking on the role of teacher and physical education instructor, activities director, for our kids as we try to navigate this new world of virtual learning. Understandably, juggling work and the kids while being stuck under one roof can add to the anxiety around this pandemic. Here to discuss some tips for how to stay calm and sane is Andrea Bonnier. She's a clinical psychologist and author of Detox Your Thoughts. Uh, okay, Andrea, I'm speaking not just uh, for my viewers, but for my family too. What can parents do to alleviate some of the stress and anxiety around the situation. Yeah, you know, and I'm speaking for myself as well, to be quite honest. I'm sure we might hear yelling in the background any moment now. But I think the first step really is for us to adjust our expectations. This is not about completely replicating an academic environment in the classic way while simultaneously holding down a full-time job. Both of those standards need to be reduced. And I think we need to understand that growth can happen for children, even when we're not doing it in the traditional ways, that this is not a time to be making sure that every single second is filled up with the equivalent math, the equivalent science that they would have been getting, that this is also an opportunity for them to learn in other ways, to learn how a household runs, to learn conflict resolution, to learn, hey, how to cut each other's hair. In my family's case, it's been an interesting way to sort of listen to what's on the kids' minds and just try to relax expectations and say, this isn't going to look exactly like school, but that doesn't have to be a negative thing. So, I mean, there are a lot of parents out there who feel guilty about the fact that their kids are not having school the way that we all had school. They want to keep their kids stimulated all day. Um, yeah. and, and the parents are feeling overwhelmed. What, what do you say to those parents? 
Yeah, to these parents that, you know, it's a matter of the kids picking up on how you're handling this situation. And so a kid is going to emerge from this much better off if they see you being realistic, managing your own anxiety, communicating well, being empathetic to their needs, and being flexible as things come up. That's going to be a growth experience, a learning experience for your kids. Whereas if you go into this really, really rigid and feeling guilty and making it seem like you're a failure, they're going to pick up on that. And it's going to lead to negativity. This is such an uncertain time that this is an opportunity for you to teach your kids how we deal with stress and how we deal with uncertainty and how we can be compassionate to ourselves and our family members, even though things aren't perfect, even though we feel like we're not doing a good enough job. Sometimes a good enough job is in the eye of the beholder and we can support each other and be compassionate about it. So my kids are young enough that I do not go home and talk to them about every horrible thing going on in the world. If they ask me about it, I'll talk to them. But otherwise, I'm not going to bring it up. Uh, there's no hiding uh, the coronavirus pandemic from them. Um, how can we help our children process this, understand it? Yeah. Yeah, I think the first step is really to listen to where they are, because I think so many of us want to say the exact perfect thing have the right script to exactly get a certain point across. And we actually don't know what's on their mind about it. We have to listen to what they're bringing to the table because it could be that they're worried about our possible deaths. Or it mm. could be they're sad that they're not seeing their friends. You know, those are vastly different conversations to have. So meet them where they are. Ask them, what's on your mind? What do you understand of this? What do you make of this? What have you seen about this when we've had the news on? And then meet them, you know, in age-appropriate ways. But the understanding that we are doing what we can to keep our family safe, that it's up to mom and dad or whatever parents or guardians there are to take on the stress of this, that it's not your job to worry about keeping us safe. We are going to keep you safe. We're going to talk to each other and listen to each other, and we're going to help each other manage this. And then you can explain, you know, a teenager, it's a much different conversation that might involve the ramifications of the economy and, you know, what's going to look like social, what his social life or her social life is going to look like. Whereas a young child, it can be a simple conversation about keeping grandparents safe and washing our hands and doing our part. But I think that's the most important thing, too, is helping kids feel like they are doing their part, that this isn't just time off from school. It's actually a time for them to make a difference by staying home and keeping people safe. With the message that we're all going to get through this, we're all going to get out of this together. Andrea Bonnier, Thank you so much. I appreciate it. We're watching the White House where the Coronavirus Task Force is going to hold a briefing in minutes. We're going to bring that to you live. In the meantime, the death rate in the United States, I regret to tell you, has reached 898. Stay with us. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number Smart Beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.